0: Welcome to Time and Tide, Nantucket's Maritime History Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Schwanfelder, Maritime Studies Instructor for Egan Maritime Institute. Listen along for stories from the high seas that rise from the depths of despair to the peak of human hope and salvation. This podcast is brought to you by Egan Maritime Institute. Through our programs and educational opportunities, We work to inspire the appreciation and preservation of Nantucket's maritime culture and seafaring legacy. Time and Tide, wait for no man. Welcome back, everyone. It's official. We are kicking off Season 2 of the Time and Tide podcast. And oh man, do we have a good story to start it off with today. But first, I want to give a huge thanks to all the listeners who tuned in over the course of Season 1 and waited patiently for this second installment. We're expanding the format a bit, and we really hope you enjoy the stories coming out over the next few months. As always, like and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms, and be sure to follow on Instagram at Time and Tide Nantucket. Season 2, Episode 1, Survival Off Sanctity with Captain Pete Kayser. All right, if you live on Nantucket, especially if you work or spend a lot of time on the water, you probably know or have heard of the man, the myth, the legend, Captain Pete Kayser. Pete is one of the saltiest guys I have personally ever met. He's also a master diver and salvager, and he is widely regarded as one of the top tuna fishermen in the region and beyond. During the peak of bluefin tuna fishing in the 80s and the 90s, one of the top buyers in Japan's largest fish markets rolled out the red carpet and invited Pete, his tuna broker, and their wives to an all-expense paid VIP trip to the country because his fish consistently fetched top dollar in one of the world's premier fish markets. Pete's energy and enthusiasm are unmatched, and to take a trip with him aboard his faithful boat, the Althea K, for a day of catching, is definitely a day of fun and excitement that few ever forget. Full disclosure, Pete is my father-in-law. I ended up marrying the captain's daughter. The story only further solidifies my theory that fishermen and people who spend their lives on the water also make some of the best storytellers around. And Captain Pete is no exception. The story you are going to hear today takes us to the early 1980s on Nantucket. Pete was in his early years fishing on the island when a local bluefish market developed. Pete applied gill netting strategies that he learned while fishing the winter seasons in Florida and adapted them to Nantucket's inshore fishery. When I first moved to the island, I heard this wild story among many wild stories and thought, man, we really need to record this. So fast forward now, some years later, the podcast is up and running. We finally got Pete in the studio and it came out even better than we expected. We hope you enjoy. Pete, you made it into the studio. Here you are. I'm going to keep it short on my end. This is a phenomenal story. I said we got to get it down. Tell it to our audience from the beginning through the middle and to the end.
1: All right, here we go. Now that uh, my memory refreshes myself, the... uh, Again, back in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, we were doing all kinds of fishing. And in the winter, fortunate enough to get on these gillnet boats. And at that time, it seemed appropriate, you know, a good way to catch fish. So up north, up here, we, uh, at that point in time, bluefish were very abundant. And Kevin Shore was running Nantucket Seafood down at Straight Wharf buying scallops, buying all kinds of stuff, lobsters and stuff. So anyway, they had developed smoked bluefish pate. Until that point, eh, you'd hear about it. People would mostly make it in their backyards. But Kevin developed a market for it. So we'd go out with hand lines and stuff like that. We'd catch, you know, a fair amount. But then he came up with a price which was actually the same as codfish, if not a little more. We're getting about, it's about 1980-ish, getting about 35, 40 cents a pound. And for inshore, that was a lot of money back then. And you didn't have to go that far out. So anyway, I did this gill netting down in Florida. And another guy and myself, kid Tommy Smith from the Cape, he was kind of interested in it. So we decided to hang a few nets he hung his i hung mine we had a little formula the boys from down in florida the henry and bobby crane we explained to them how big the fish were and they drew up these sticks and that's what we hung the net according to those sticks the best way that the net would hang and that the fish would strike them and they were pros so anyway we took their guidance we hung those nets in 19 I'll say 80 in the spring well in between fishing offshore there brought them back up and I brought this small boat called a Mitchell boat. It was kind of crazy. It had an engine on the far starboard side right in the stern. And then it had a piece of vertical plywood that would come up. And the net, when you set it, was in the back of the boat. And it would fairly lead off the port side. And you didn't have to worry about getting it in the prop or anything. So anyway, I brought that boat up. We put the net on it and it was about the spring of um say 80 or 81 and off we went and sure enough back then bobby DeCosta was fishing with me he uh he was up for some adventure just out of the service so we went out and we set some fish over in the court of the bay saw some fish up in the shallows put that net around it and from there you'd what you do just get them to spook into the net? You'd jump over the cork line with the boat, get in the center of the circle, you'd make a complete circle around them, you'd rev the engine like run run run, and you'd see those fish just boogie right to that net. The corks they were on the top, you'd see them fluttering fluttering fluttering, and uh, anyway, it turned out to be pretty successful. So we'd come in with anywhere from two thousand, three thousand, sometimes four. And a lot of times, what we do when we got a little further from the harbor, we take the Althea K with us. And that would be basically the carry boat. Because then we'd have to gut the fish, ice them, keep them in good shape. And, uh, and a lot of times, we just tow the Mitchell boat to wherever we were going. Mitchell boat was about 21 feet, 20, 21 feet. So off we went. Kevin, you know, he had plenty of product, he was able to expand his market and as long as we kept supplying the fish it was going good in fact the second year that we went we started going down around off sankity down around off the airport setting the fish down there and again everything was tide orientated you know the big tides you'd be careful because the tide ran so hard it would collapse the net so you'd have to pick and choose your days or just set them on the slack when the tide wasn't running so anyway second year came around uh, they developed a smokehouse behind Marine Lumber. And I think, I think it was Bob Ruley that was uh, Captain Bob, that was running the smokehouse then. Lloyd Arnold was working for Kevin. And uh, it was pretty cool. Everybody was making money. We were making money. They were making money smoking it, making the pate, selling it. It was good. A lot of adventure, a lot of excitement. And uh, so, anyway, the second year there, comes along, and things are going good. As the summer progressed, the fish sort of left the inside, went around the backside of the island, so we would follow around off sanctity down off the airport, and uh, it was in August, and I remember it well because it was the uh, billfish tournament was going on, and Bobby liked, he had fished with Dougie Lindley a fair amount, so Dougie needed somebody, and Bobby said, hey, could I Take a couple of days off, jump on the boat with them and, you know, go catch some billfish. I said, yeah, sure. My nephew, Jimmy Krull, Andy Krull, the two of them, they'd fill in now and then. So I said, well, I think we'll be all right. It was calling for calm, you know, calm seas during the day anyway. And uh, so Jimmy and myself, we towed the green boat, the little Mitchell boat behind us. Went all the way down behind the airport and um, there was some fish there. But the tide was cranking. It was right on the full moon. And it was cranking. So you'd check it out, see how the tide was running. Sometimes it got to be just a little too dangerous, and you weren't going to catch any fish anyway, because the net would just collapse. So we got down there. And uh, boy, it was tough not to set that net, I'll tell you. But we decided not to. So we started back around. And... Coming just past Sankity, coming north, about two miles off the beach. We saw some birds out there. So we decided to go out, and I think we had a flasher back then. It was either a flasher or a paper machine. I mean that was before fancy electronics. So anyway
0: And that's for your for your weather reports. Oh, well no, correctly.
1: that's to see if there's any fish on it around.
0: Oh yeah, okay, right. Yeah, the
1: flasher on the bottom. Yep,
0: yep. Gotcha.
1: So anyway, we went along, and all of a sudden, the flashes are flashing away. It was like, wow, I think we got some fish here. And I think we had the paper machine also. That's a, you know, modern day back then. Right, now
0: you got the, the chirp and the so, sonar. Right, right. So anyway, it right.
1: was just coming up on the slack, and it was like, wow, I think there's a lot of fish here. So we decided, all right, what you do is you throw a sample. You throw a rod, you know, throw a jig over, let it go to the bottom, snap it a couple times, or a popper, just to see what's on those birds. It looked like a mother load. So, just before the slack, we said, okay. if We set now, we'll anchor the big boat, the K. anchor it, which would be, if anything went wrong, it'd be down sea of us. So we anchored that appropriately. Then we went out in the green boat, located the body of fish right there where we left them and I said okay we got enough time we could probably set this net haul it back within 45 minutes and we'll be good to go well it was a beautiful day unfortunately we were you know we were too busy trying to catch fish and they weren't really calling for any kind of weather but we didn't know about it. There was a hard, hard line of thunderstorms coming across from the west. I mean, severe thunderstorm warnings and everything. So anyway, we, uh, and as you, I don't know if a lot of people do know or don't know, but a lot of times the weather will change on the slack. That's, if it's going to come, that's when all hell breaks loose.
0: Yep, you've told me that. It's, it's pretty it's, true. It's quite cool to see, yeah. The
1: fog comes, the fog goes at all the magic hour. Yep. slack tide. Anyway, needless to say, we jump in the boat, locate the fish, and all of a sudden, again, we usually went three-handed, especially in times like that, or anticipating a lot of fish, but... Bobby went, you know, in the Billfish tournament. So Jibby and myself got to do it. We set that net over. We started coming around, started to close up the end, and you could feel the fish hitting the net already before we even drummed it out. Which drumming is when you get in the middle and you rub the engine, and it spooks the fish into the net, and they gill off. Anyway, we uh, we felt them hit the net as we closed it up. Jumped in the middle, made a couple rum rum. Next thing you know, grabbed the end of the net. They were in there. They were just, there are a lot of fish in there. So we had to just keep going. All of a sudden, it started getting a little darker, darker, right around 6, 7 o'clock. And uh, it got dark early. It was kind of weird. It was like, what's going on here? Meanwhile, we're now got a hold of the net. We got it straightened out. And it's awesome. Fish everywhere just coming in, coming in. And before you do it, like when you see one of these fronts, all of a sudden it starts coming, turns dark, turns darker, little crackle of lightning, thunder. So we're hauling, hauling, and next thing you know, it just comes out of nowhere. It's blowing 20, 25, 30. And the tide wasn't supposed to turn for another half hour, 45 minutes. It had turned early because the wind was kicking it. Next thing you know, it's decision time. I mean, we're hauling. We got about another, you know, quarter of the net to go. We already got about thirty, about 3,000 on board, 3,500. For that small boat, it's quite a bit. So, all of a sudden, I'm looking, and we take a couple of waves. It's starting to get nasty. Starting to haul faster, faster. It's getting lousier, crackling, lightning, thunder, and... The tide to turn so fast now we're down current of where the Althea K is anchored up so there's no, if something went wrong there's no swimming or making our way to the boat so we got in a bad spot waves are starting to come come and all of a sudden decision time i said jimmy step back i'm gonna pay all these fish pay the net we're paying it back overboard we're getting off of this thing so Everything was going right. Jimmy steps back. I just put it in down sea. We start going. The net's flying over. Thousands, you know, thousands of pounds of fish are going over. You know, bam, 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 bam. All of a sudden, the blue fish that were gilled off on part of the net that was down further in the bunch had gilled off in the net, some of the net up on the surface. And it was like you threw the anchor out. The net stopped, the waves came, the transom went down, almost took a wave. I was like, cut it, cut it. He runs back to cut it, didn't cut it, next wave comes in. All of a sudden, it was like, we get the net in the prop, and now we are hung up. So we finally, the nets got, you know, the engine's got a net in the prop, we cut that loose. We raised the engine. We cut it. We couldn't get the net out of there. The waves are coming. We're trying to bail the fish, bail the net. A Couple big waves come, and I could see it starting to happen. I reached down and forward, down to the little cutty, broke through the plexiglass, grabbed a life, two life jackets, threw him one, said, "Get it on!" And at the same time, I grabbed there a couple flares and a little lantern that were right, readily, right there. I put those right up top. So here we are, throwing the fish over, bailing with five-gallon buckets, you know, best bilge pump in the world, a scared man in five-gallon bucket. And there we were. Now we got loose of the fish, but we're broadside in the sea. And before you knew it, again, with the lightning, the thunder, the wind coming out of nowhere, we took a couple waves, and the boat was filling fast. Next thing you know, the rail goes under, the boat had flotation, Next thing we go broadside, it starts to roll, roll, roll. We're like a couple of rats running up the back side of it. So I grabbed the flares, I grabbed the lantern, we had our life jackets on. Next thing you know, we're floating away from the net, upside down trying to hold on to the boat and we're fading to the south. We're about, we're up off Squam is when this happened, about three miles north of Sankity. So, There we are, a mile and a half, two miles offshore, and the tide's going to the south. It's coming out of the southwest, the wind is. So it's driving us. We have to now swim against this stuff to get inshore. And I listened to the forecast earlier, and they were calling for like two to three days of fog. So we rapidly try to set these flares off with a lantern, this waterproof lantern. It was kind of comical anyway we kick the boots off kick the oilers off there we are hanging on we try to light off the flare it fizzles unfortunately it was an outdated flare probably five six years old and we never used a flare before but we lit it off it fizzled sparked and died we had one more chance the other flare so we read the directions best we could Exactly the same setup. Meanwhile, we will trying to hold on and not get blown off the boat. Same thing happens. The next flare spits, fizzles, pep, pep, pep. and in between the lightning and the thunder, who the hell knew? Nobody's going to see us. So it fizzled. Then it was decision time. If we didn't make the lighthouse swimming, we would have been swept right by the island, right down off the old man, when the tide would turn then, it would kick you back up to the north. You'd be out by Bass Rip. You'd end up down to Davis, or the uh, Crown. Then the other switch, we just figured it kept going. Rosecrown, Davis's, fishing Rip. Now you'd be out in the channel. So do we stay with this capsized boat that had flotation and try to hold on and be in the fog for a couple days? We didn't even have Eperbs back then. I think the big boat had, it was a first-generation Eperb when it showed up, but we didn't have it with us. So, decision time. We're gonna have to swim and to that lighthouse. It would just light, the lightning would light it up, plus the beam. We said, all right, kid, we gotta make it. Just, he said, aren't there sharks in these waters? I said, forget about the sharks, we just gotta, kid, we have to swim, hit that beach before we get swept offshore. Because if that happens, All bets are off. So, thinking about it, quickly, I had to make sure I got my nephew to the beach. Because if he didn't make it, my sister would have, sure enough, she'd have shot me. I'd have done dead meat one way or the other. So that was it. I said, okay, kid, here we go. We're going to start swimming. And we started swimming. And we're swimming right into the waves, two to four foot and we just kept swimming, and lightning and thunder. You didn't give a shit about lightning at that point. It it wouldn't be a bad way to go, I guess. We figured we'd be eaten by a shark or something. So anyway, we swam, we swam, the thunder, the lightning. And you know, we were young, bulletproof, probably I think we were like mid-30s, something like that. My nephew was like 20s. So there was the light of the Althea K. They had the running lights on. We could see that fading off as we, you know, got swept with the tide, swimming our butts off. And then he started to say, are you sure there are a lot of sharks around? I said, forget the sharks, just swim. So we swam, we swam, we swam. Thing was, I also taught diving, scuba diving. And there's one thing you don't want to do is when somebody panics, you don't want to be too close to them. Because they will crawl right up over top of you. And if you're not careful, they might drown you. So even though I wanted to stay real close to him and almost hold, you know, just come on if he got tired, he was getting a little panicky at times. And I just have to, in between all this hectic, you know, situation, had to try to calm him down. So Jimmy, just concentrate. Focus. Focus. We got to make the light. We got to make the light. Then we swam. And we swam. And we swam. And it was... Nobody, nobody's seen us out there. Who knows how long it took? It seemed like it took forever. But we finally got a little bit in the lee of the bluff and it started to calm down a little bit, but the tide was still racing, racing to the south. So you had to make it. You had to get there. So we just kept going, kept going, kept going, got calmer, got a little calmer. We kept going, kept going, but we still had to make the beach. So, right around just here south of the lighthouse, bang, we make it to the beach. And we laid there, just like in a movie, you know, we're just exhausted, laying there in a little bit of wash, you know, just laying on the beach, just saying nothing, just thinking a lot. Maybe this isn't a good business to be in, I thought at times. <laughs> So, anyway, I look over at my nephew, and he I, he just he couldn't believe it. And I think he was thinking the same as I was. Maybe it was time to get a new, new line of work, you know. So, we said, okay, you're good? Let's go. We got no shoes, just barefooted, you know. We got our life jackets. And back then, there was some there was some, you know, stairs that came right to the south of the lighthouse. They came all the way down to the beach right there. So I was like, all right, let's get up here. So we start going up these stairs. We get to the top, and there's lights on. We say, great, you know, we gotta make a phone call. We start walking toward the house. We get about, I don't know, 20, 30 yards toward the house, and all of a sudden we hear two growling German shepherds, and they're coming our way, they're coming at us. It was like, run! So we turn around, we run back to the stairs, and we're running down the stairs, and the German shepherds are chasing us. Finally, they only chase us a little ways down. But I thought, that's great. We just escaped, you know, Mother Nature trying to kill us. And now we're gonna come up here and get eaten by a couple of German shepherds. So anyway, you had to look at the humorous side. So we're laughing, we're running down the stairs, we get away from them, we go to the next one, we go up. It's like, all right, no dogs. We go up, knock on the door, some lady answers. And there we are, soaking wet. We got our life jackets. And she just looked at us and, what are you guys doing? We said, well, this is a trick-or-treat night. We we just sunk a boat out there, and we just swam ashore, and we need to get a hold of somebody. So she says, really? I said, yep. So, of course, she offered us a drink. We accepted that. We called this kid Bert Herlock, who used to live in Sconset. He fished with me. Off and on, he dove with us with Phil, Phil Ozley and myself doing salvage work. He lived right around the corner, and he actually would fill in at times. So I called him. I started to tell him the story. I said, "Just get over to this address," and he was all excited. He was like wishing he was there. It was so you know. I said, "Believe me, you wish. You don't want to wish you were there." So he picks us up. Now it's I don't know nine o'clock, ten o'clock at night. Picks us up. Brings us some clothes, and we're thinking, I'm glad when this night's over. And then I thought, wait a minute, the Althea K is still anchored up out there. We have to get a way to go out there. We have to go back and get the boat. So we go to town, and this guy, Buck Morris, who had a boat called the Prowler, he was my father in law's brother. He and Grace used to live there on the dock, and they would conk and go out bass fishing a little bit here and there. So, we got to close, had another beer, said, all right, we gotta go. So we run down to the boat, wake up, hey Buck, you on there? And Buck was kinda, of, he was from Tennessee, he was a funny guy, big guy, just sharp, heart of gold. He said, what are you boys up to now? I said, Buck, it's a long story. You just stay there at the bunk and I'll drive." He goes, no, I gotta come up here, this. So anyway, we told him the story and he's like come on Gracie we gotta go so sure enough by then the front had gone through and it started to clear so off we go around Great Point we had to go all the way around it was dead low water and uh, so we didn't want to take any more chances I said go all the way around sure enough we got out there the moon was, come, moon was up and uh, you know right there off Squam mile and a half two miles off there was the K, just sitting there like waiting for us, you know. So we uh, got on board and still with those thoughts of maybe we need a different line of work, you know. But the job wasn't done yet. So we had to go get on the boat, start it right up, haul the anchor. We come in and we're thinking, whatever happened? What do you think ever happened to the green boat? Well, thinking all that, we get back to the dock Now we had a few more beers, to say the least. And then we're discussing, okay, tomorrow, what are we going to do? We're going to have to wake up, go out there, and see if we can snag that net, grapple up that net. So sure enough, went out, grappled it up, brought it up. A lot of the fish were trashed. You know, the lobsters ate them, the crabs ate them. And lo and behold, we get to certain parts of the net that we had paid over, it had big holes in the net. I was real familiar with that. That's where the sharks would eat it up. The sharks would go have grab the fish, just cannonballs we used to call it. So uh my nephew wasn't too far off when he said, Hey, aren't there some sharks in these waters? I said, Yeah, just don't worry about them. But anyway, we got the net back and uh told Kevin, said, you know, we'll try setting it with this with the big boat, but just didn't work out. It wasn't the same as having that small boat, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was a that was a night to remember, and something. But again, those thoughts about maybe I should get a different line of work, and I thought, you know, I I kind of still like this. So, actually, because we sunk that boat and it was like either go cod fishing, which you're only paying about 30 cents a pound, 25 cents a pound. We decided, this guy, Larry, from one of the sport boats, he was a good friend. He took us out tuna fishing, we, he came with us. We went out and just dabbled in this tuna fish thing with the hand lines, you know, just rope in a basket, leather gloves. And uh, needless to say, the long and the short of it, we get out of the blue fishing and all of a sudden, we evolved into the tuna, which were kind of cool. And we'd go tuna fishing. We'd still go back cod fishing now and then. And we also had some conch traps out. I mean, no matter what you wanted to do that time of life, there were abundance, abundance of shellfish, you know, conks, lobsters, codfish, bluefish, bass, and the tuna fish. So, anyway... That's the story about gill netting bluefish and then having to swim ashore. And actually, we do the dive work around here. Phil Osley from the Sunken Ship and myself. And uh, a couple weeks later, we got called to do a job. And one of the draggers, we were talking, and we told him the story, you know, chuckling about it. We could chuckle a couple weeks later. He goes, what color was that boat? I said, well, it had flotation. It was green. He goes, you know what? They saw that boat. It was on the radio, a couple of the guys that it was on a clear day just outside Fishing Rip. It's about 25 miles southeast of, uh, east southeast of Sankety. They said they saw the bow of a green boat floating out there. So that's, I don't know if we'd have made it or not, but I think we made the right decision.
2: So it's pretty cool having my dad up in the studio, and uh, today's discussion at the end, or I guess my questions, are going to be between my father and I instead of Evan and I, which is kind of cool. So uh, it was really incredible to hear the story in its entirety. I've been hearing bits and pieces of this story literally since I was a kid growing up, and uh, it's interesting. um, We love Uncle Jimmy, but he doesn't uh, visit that much, does he, Dad?
1: Well, like I say, <laughs> sometimes experiences in life can chart the rest of your uh, the course of your life. Yeah. And Jimmy definitely decided that water was not for him. So again, he became the successful engineer, which that, was great. That in, is inshore. That's right. Way inshore. That's
2: right. And he he you know he doesn't come back to go fishing a lot, but he did come to our wedding. And uh, yeah, I think it's pretty great. Um, the whole story. I cannot believe to this day that you did that, and thank God you did, because it sounds like I wasn't even around back then.
1: Nope. You were just a...
2: Just a thought. Sparkle in my eyes. <laughs> I love it.
1: Mom and myself had talked about, you know, getting married and having a family, but it was close,
0: It was, but close not call. yet.
2: Yeah, you have about 99 lives, I think, given all your stories. So that's really my one question I have for you, Dad, now that we've got you up here in the hot seat. And... uh I'm wondering, what on earth did mom really say to you about this? And what did she think? I mean, maybe we'll have a follow-up episode someday where we get her on to talk about all your antics and uh, adventures. But that's pretty scary. And I do know she's told me before, you know, there was no cell phones. She had no idea where you were, probably more than once when you were out on the boats. But what was going through your head? And, like, what? how did you finally contact her?
1: Well, <clears throat> like I say... Given the people that I hung with, you know, Uncle Spanky, <laughs> Phil Osley, sure. uh, Dougie Hawks, I mean, there were a lot of crazy, wild, you know, adventures, if, you know, on the water, on land. Uh, so she was getting used to it, you know, uh, like, oh, here we go again. Yeah. Anyway, but again, when you're in a situation like that, it comes down to the last second. It's like sort of a balancing ball you could crack and fall, or you could just keep going. And it comes down a lot of times to that last split second. So as I'm trying to bring Jimmy along, and we're swimming with this deadline, we have to make the lighthouse. But we had talked about getting married. We talked about having kids, you know? So I didn't, I just, that's what some of what I thought about when we were swimming in. Like I've got to get in, I've got to make this. Again, Jimmy's got to gank it, otherwise my sister's going to shoot me. <laughs> yeah, that's trampy. Uh, you would have been pretty upset and, about that. And uh, mom, she'd be upset because she had tasks for me to do and I haven't finished them.
2: <laughs> and she loved you. So
1: I said, you know what? I have no choice. I've got to make this because I do want to have a family someday, some little rugrats. There you go. Which you are testimony, you I and know. your brother. And so uh, you think about that stuff and that often... It's something that gives you that second breath and determination and you go for it. Yeah. And again, mom, she had already been used to some of our antics to begin with, with Uncle Phil and myself doing salvage work and dives and nighttime and Coast Guard stuff and uh you know, for some for purposes of discussion only situations that could happen. Sure. Uh but anyway, that was it. I said, you know what? When I told her, I walked in the house, and of course, she said, where have you been? It's so late. I said, uh, we're here, but I got to leave. She goes, where are you going? I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you.
2: That's I right. I said, I'll be
1: home later tonight. I'll tell you in the morning.
2: That's right. That's and right. And she
1: just shook her head and said, here we go again.
2: Oh, my gosh. That's so. amazing. Well, she's she's a good sport.
1: Oh, and she's well she's versed, and uh, yeah. There isn't much that she hasn't gone through from the diving, the (laughs) fishing, airplane antics. That's right. You know?
2: That's right. Yeah, mom's definitely, uh, she is, she's a saint.
1: (laughs) Saint? A lot of people say that.
2: Yeah, she's a saint. (laughs) Uh, Putting up
1: with my antics? I guess so.
2: That's right. Well, thanks again for sharing your story, first-hand account of a shipwreck with Time and Tide Podcast. It's so exciting. Since Evan got this idea... Back when the podcast started, he said over and over, I've got to get your dad on the microphone. And I kept saying, good luck getting him to sit still in one place and tell a story. But, you know, here we are. Mm. It's December. The days are short. And we got you up in the studio. So that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. And here it is, 37 years later. We're talking about having kids and a family and grandkids. and
2: Here it is. Sure enough, we little had Millie. our kids, which are now <laughs> young
1: adults. And we had our first granddaughter, thanks to you and Evan.
2: That's right. Little Millie. It's a family affair. She's uh, she's made a appearance on the podcast here and there. She makes little noises. Oh, so, yeah. So thanks again for coming up, Dad. We appreciate it.
0: All right. Captain Pete, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this story. There will definitely be more to come. Big thanks to Katie for the follow-up discussion, and thanks to everyone out there for tuning in. We'll see you next time. This podcast is made possible in great part because of generous contributions from our members and donors. To learn more about Egan Maritime's mission and to offer your support, visit our website eganmaritime.org, click on support, or text the keyword Maritime to 91999. And if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram at Time and or our website, TimeandTidENantucket.com. Until next time, fair winds and following seas.